We are fast approaching the last month of 2023. Now, given the fact today, so much have taken place this year. Not only people are following this ongoing political division in America, and given the fact that more candidates today are AIing for this 2024 presidential election and hopefully become the final candidate, can bring the person to the White House. But meanwhile, we also need to pay attention to this economic uncertainty, given the fact that post the pandemic, the entire world today seems to hold different attitude when we look at this economic agenda. Some countries, should we say, are actually gearing up for something much greater when you're looking at the economic partnership. But meanwhile, some countries are questioning if the current economic planning. Are going to make the country more prosperous, and here's a more question to ask. But at the end of the day, as we're looking ahead of 2024, we also need to think about the word wealth and also richness, especially from the standpoint of the Western aspect. How did the country get here? In other words, how should we understand and assess what we called? This wealth value in America today. Does that mean that today, when we look at what we call this capitalistic system, America shall be the best and the only example? And how about the definition for wealth, and also the definition for what we call capitalistic modification? Well, all those words that seems very much ambiguous. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my Great honor to invite our distinguished speaker, who is Dr. Guido Alfani. Now, Dr. Alfani is a full professor of economic history at Bocconi University in Milan. His areas of interest include economic history and demography, and with a focus on long-term dynamic on economic inequality and social mobility. And of course, in this episode, we are going to talk about his new book, which is entitled "As Gods Among Men: A History of the Rich in the West." Well, Dr. Alfani, and welcome to the Missing Piece. Thank you, and welcome everybody. Well, Dr. Alfani, I want to get started again. As we mentioned before, your book it's actually called "As Gods Among Men: History of the Rich in the West." Now, when we talk about the wealth and the rich today, and also、uh, this is something that you dive into the book regarding the word class. You know, again, traditionally speaking, we're looking at this upper class, middle class, and the lower class, and that basically demonstrates the income, or should we say, the wealth gap. But I want to read something to you, and also want to get your further explanation. This is what you wrote in the book, and I quote: First of all, the definition of class traditionally used. Tend to reflect a multi-dimensional social, political, and cultural hierarchies, which are much more complex than the simple economic hierarchy, which sees the rich at the top. Now, today, when we look at this social fabric in the West and also this complexity of the geopolitical change, how do you think that we should redefine the definition of class? Does that mean that we're still seeing this wealth gap in the West? Let's start the question from there. Go ahead. So, well, we definitely see、uh, wealth gaps across society in pretty much every country, and that's clearly also the case of、uh, um, of Western countries. 
Now, the, the reason why I uh, try to avoid using the word class in, in my book is precisely they wanted to bring the focus only on the distribution of wealth. So who has the greatest share of wealth in a given period and area? And this is because in this way, I can be more flexible, right? I can assess in a different way the fact that, in a, again, across time, you see a different composition of the richest components of society. Uh, while if we start considering the concept of class, it might be that somebody belongs to the upper classes without being particularly wealthy. So it's a different take, which is important. It's very important, but I want to do something something different. And I want to kind of be more open to this kind of change in specifically the composition of those who are placed at the top of the wealth of the wealth pyramid. And then, of course, um, this kind of also makes things easier, right? Because provided that across, again, countries, so also, of course, beyond the wealth, we'll have uh, a certain inequality in the distribution of, of wealth on principle, this is something that could be easier to compare across societies precisely because it's not a definition which has many strings attached okay mm -hmm. we don't we aren't looking at, at other dimensions um, in the book however i also look at other things uh, which uh, other kind of concepts which uh, are more complex also look at other aspects for example i discuss uh, uh, the hypothesis that uh, uh, today we are observing the emergence of a global aristocracy. And we, when we talk about a global aristocracy in, in this meaning, uh, we are no longer talking only about wealth. We are also talking about uh, shared experiences, <laughs> sorry, about having certain interests, about having certain connections belonging to certain um to certain networks and to certain social media, as the French would say that. So it's kind of another important thing, which has, of course, to do with my definition of, you know, who is a rich, uh, but it's kind of different. And of course, that also has to do with the fact that um, across the planet, I would say, uh, many among the very rich today have basically inherited their wealth. And this is also why they tend to have uh, some more shared experiences across the board and also going, of course, beyond, beyond the West. Hmm. You know, Professor, again, I want to go back to the book because very simple today that when we look at, again, regard the word, uh, uh, regarding the word wealth, you know, we're looking at income and look at salary and also more often that today, going back to the society, that we're looking at this economic gap but meanwhile, some argue that because of the word wealth and because of the word class that make what we call the inequality more obvious. So in other words, it's more unavoidable. Now, going back to your book, how much do you think that today when we talk about this income or wealth concentration, it actually help us with better understanding regarding the drivers of inequality presence or what we called or what your book said underlying the drivers of inequality change so why do we still see so much inequality in the society 
especially when we're looking at this capitalistic uh, structure or looking at this capitalistic system, does that mean that inequality, it's really part of this economic agenda? What do you say to that? Well, I, I would say that we, 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 we see uh, inequality in societies because it is there. So mm. our societies are unequal. And then when I, I say this, I, you know, I could make like a, a softer statement saying all human societies have been unequal. Right? So there is some degree of inequality which is inherent to any society. And then, of course, the level of inequality uh, it tends to be higher in more complex societies. So there are studies which, are, which show how inequality grew from when we moved from being hunter-gatherers to when we moved to being farmers. And then uh, the development of the early states only creates more space for having higher inequality and so forth and so on. And also, economic growth in general is something which makes space for higher inequality. Then it's not a given that uh, inequality will grow because the economy grows. It's a different thing, but surely if societies are richer, there is a greater space for an uneven distribution of resources, okay? Um, so, this is kind of a soft statement. Maybe the, mo the most interesting statement is whether our society is very unequal compared to previous societies. Now, if we look specifically at Western societies, then, and if we look at wealth, not an income, but the story would not be different if mm. we talk about income. But if we focus on wealth, which is what I do in the book, then the highest inequality, which we can observe, characterizes societies at the very beginning of the 20th century, so right before World War I. Then with World War I and World War II and the interwar period, there is the beginning of a phase of inequality reduction, and inequality reaches a minimum level by the 1960s or 1970s, okay? So we are today, generally speaking, less unequal than at the beginning of the 20th century, but much more unequal than at the minimum level of the 1960s and the 1970s. And, and so, you know, this is kind of something that might be uh, troubling. Then remaining within the West, there is a difference between countries the situation in the United States is worse than the situation in the average European country, because if you look at the increase in wealth inequality in the U.S. compared to Europe, it has been more substantial in the last few decades. And another problem, which might be the, the reason for some worry, is that this tendency towards uh, growing inequality uh, is continuing, maybe not at a very, at a very steep, place, steep, steep pace, but it's continuing notwithstanding the recent crisis. And the fact is, historically, crises have sometimes at least been able to reduce inequality. This hasn't happened in the 21st century. It hasn't happened with the Great Recession beginning 2008. It hasn't happened with COVID-19. It's not happening in Europe with an ongoing war. And, you know, this string of crises hasn't reduced inequality, hasn't interrupted this new tendency towards inequality growth. And that might be reason to worry because it's very difficult to think, also given the, the, the current uh, preferences, the political preferences for lighter taxation and also flatter taxation, less progressive taxation, it's very difficult to think that this tendency will disappear on its own. And it's also 
uh, kind of difficult to imagine that there will be a, a political consensus uh, which will be effective in trying to invert the tendency in the upcoming years. Mm. Professor, I want to borrow a quote. Again, this is someone that you also mentioned. It's a famous economist, and the name is Thomas Piketty. I mean, again, in this book that you mentioned that Piketty once argued that an excessive concentration of wealth might be incompatible with the correct functioning of the characterizing institution of Western democracies. So, and uh, again, a clear red thread in history hidden in plain sight. You know, too often when we talk about the word economy, I guess, again, Professor, you're the expert. Going back to the days that starting the founding fathers, I guess that was the beginning, or that was, should we say, the eyes of the uh, the uh, tip of the iceberg to understand the correlation between democracy and economy. But as the Western history continued to evolve and continue to uh, revolutionize, one thing we have to understand is today, when we talk about economy, we cannot just isolate the word economy without bringing the word democracy. So going back to uh, the quote uh, borrowed from Piketty, how much do you think that today we still need to pay attention to this tangible, or should we say, this close-knitted relationship between economy and democracy? Can we separate them? If not, how can we understand and appreciate those two fundamental elements at the same time? What do you think of that? Well, I think that uh, it's, it's, it's one of the big problems that we have to address. Mm. Uh, it's not only, I would say, economy and democracy, it's also society. So also society is something that we can't truly separate from the world economy if we want to look at how things work in practice, okay? Mm. And, and so, uh, this kind of concern, right, the concern about the fact that if you have a society which is democratic in a broad meaning, in, in terms of, you know, being a society in which everybody has, at least on principle, the same access to institutions, the same uh, political rights, the problem is, I mean, is this compatible with whatever kind of economic organization, or do we need to keep certain valuables, such as, for example, uh, the, the inequality in access to economic resources within boundaries, if a democracy is expected to actually function as it is supposed to function? And what I always uh, found very interesting in, in, in that statement by Tomato Piketty is that to me at least it is very close, it seems very to be very close to, to, to something that you find already in medieval mm. uh, scholars uh, reflecting about precisely these things. So the, the title of my book, As Gods Among Men, is a paraphrasis of uh, a French philosopher of the 14th century, Nicole Oren, who is translating and adapting Aristotle, so the Greek philosopher of the classical antiquity from the, the politics of Aristotle, mm. and he says basically that um, in societies which are organized democratically, the super rich will be as God is among men because of their you know, 
exceptional access to resources. And for this reason, they should be banished because they can't be expected to work within institutional framework as all others. And that's precisely the same concern. So is there a limit in income inequality, but even more importantly, in wealth inequality, because wealth is kind of gives you a much more direct um, impression of the actual potential for uh, mobilizing economic resources of somebody, right? Because And also wealth has a much greater potential for being unevenly distributed than income, right? So that's where really you can find more extreme inequality. So are, is, there a, is there a boundary in, 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 in wealth inequality after which we can no longer be, uh, we can no longer expect that uh, um, people who on th in theory have exactly the same rights will be able to access institutions in the same way, mm. right? Um, can we expect that the, the, the super rich will refrain, for example, from trying to use their resources to condition policy making in ways which are uh, which will serve their own interests i think that's a question that you know at the very least is important to ask and what i think the history of the west tells us is that this has always been a major concern again from classical antiquity to the middle ages till today mm. so the, the there is the, the, the idea that if there are extremely wealthy individuals so much wealth than anybody else within a society. That society will be actually be unable to give, in practice, equal rights to everybody. That concern is something which can be found again uh, across the millennia in uh, uh, in Western culture. Mm. Professor, I want to talk about another type of economy which actually matters more than anything today, post the pandemic. It's also written in your book, and again, going back to uh, the content, and I quote, material wealth is the most important class in agricultural and pastoral societies. Wealth for hunters-gatherers embodied wealth and dominates, closely followed by rational wealth. Material wealth is of little import. I mean, again, when we look at the word agriculture, I think today, because as we mentioned before, the war in Ukraine and also the international war, uh, excuse me, the domestic war uh, um, in Israel, food is more important than anything else. I mean, let's put it in a simple way. Everyone has to eat. But meanwhile, I think too often we tend to overlook or underestimate the power of agricultural economy. Now, Professor, let's talk this a little bit more. Why do you think today that globally speaking, we need to pay attention to this, what we call agricultural society or pastoral society? It's not just from the Stone Age. It's not just from this, what we call uh, uh, post-Stone Age, right? New Stone Age. It's actually today. So what are your thoughts that when we talk about agricultural society and pastoral society, how do we understand the terms and the definitions and the impact today? Go ahead. Right. Well, of course, in, in, the, in, in the book, I was referring to the, the transition from hunter-gatherers to, to agriculture, but uh, you are absolutely right about the fact that 
the importance of uh, uh, agriculture is uh, uh, really uh, underestimated in many studies today and something that we we tend to kind of forget about because we uh, are induced by i mean we in the west at least are induced by the uh, industrial or even post-industrial societies which we experience to think that what matters is that mm. which has many consequences now if we think about <laughs> how for example uh, wealth distribution can affect uh, a rural society, then, well, basically that's a matter of the distribution of, of land, right? Now, the distribution of land is uh, actually a tricky topic, which uh, um, would require much more scholarly interest, I would say. Uh, and on this point, I think that the classical economists had it right, because they were looking at three factors of production, like labor, capital, and land. So mm. while neoclassical economists merge land and capital, the classical economists were keeping them separated. Now, why this is important? Well, this is important because if you're a society which is agricultural, or in any society in which the value of real estate is important, at least uh, as a component of the patrimonies of the most affluent part of society, then that component of wealth will not easily depreciate, mm. right? So often, uh, economists, including their models, if they try and, and model long-run dynamics, uh, an average depreciation rate of capital. But mm. why should land depreciate? If it is managed properly, it will never depreciate. What's the practical consequence of this? The consequence of this is that in a rural society, so again, one was wealth is mostly land, if there is a condition of high inequality in wealth, then in distribution of land, that will be very, 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 very difficult to upturn or even to reduce. Right, which is why uh, when we actually observe a significant reduction, is through some sort of radical uh, land reform, right? which is which only happens in very specific moments and in very specific political circumstances. Look that from the point of view of the of the West, where again we have industrial and post-industrial societies, the fact of forgetting about the importance of real estate makes us forget how much uh, this component of wealth is uh, still important in defining who is placed at the top. In certain countries, like for example, the, the United Kingdom, mm. if you look at the composition of the very top of the distribution of wealth, you will find many people who have an incredible amount of real estate. Many among them are nobles, as the United Kingdom, they, they still have a form of nobility. And there are, for example, great landowners in London who have inherited lands which were not particularly valuable in the past, but then with the, with the expansion of the metropolis of London became some of the most valuable real estate in the world, right? And, you know, in the end, that's still very important. And we systematically in the West underestimate that. If we look at our society, then I would say, yeah, that kind of, again, that kind of, of that component of wealth becomes the main determinant of wealth inequality. And again, it has the characteristic of tending to remain exactly as it is, meaning that 
the economic hierarchies will tend to remain much more fixed than in the context of a more, say, developed economy or at least an economy in which you have already uh, a substantial industrial sector, a, a more substantial service sector, and so forth and so on. Mm. Well, Professor Alfani, I want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question. Again, the book is called As Gods Among Men, A History of the Rich in the West. You know, again, if we go back to uh, this, what we call philosophical or religious content, that I believe that um, in the book that it mentioned that men should not idolize or should not worship the concept of money, you know, because this could be one of the uh, short-term or what we call short-visioned uh, temptations. But meanwhile, today we're looking at this unpredictability of economy in the West. And also we're looking at this economic competition between the West and many other countries and also what's <laughs> happening rest of the world. So let's just say for anyone who's unfamiliar with the economic concept and with the rich in the West and history, etc. What would you expect the readers to understand when they finish reading your book? I mean, again, this is amazing read. It really dive into so much uh, regarding this economic, social, and political combination in terms of understanding wealth. But for any readers that who are outside your research and outside your expertise. What would you expect the readers to understand and appreciate the most about your new book? Your final thoughts. All right. So, I think that um, in many countries today, we are looking sometimes at the super rich as uh, super heroes, almost, uh, as uh, models of, uh, of behavior. Now, what... Um, we see instead in, in history, if you look at the long run, is that uh, in the West, the, 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 the rich have struggled to find a proper place in society. They have always been looked at with suspicion, mm. which is pretty different from looking at them as models, as heroes, and so forth and so on. And it's not like this suspicion has gone away because cyclically we observe again these ways of anti-rich resentment, criticism, and so forth and so on. And the, the way in which the rich finally, from the end of the Middle Ages, found uh, a position in society in the West was by fulfilling some new roles, which was found for them, uh, beginning with that of helping their communities in times of crisis, for example, mm. during famines or wars or plagues. And it's not like they were expected to do that willingly they were either asked kindly to do that or asked to do that or you know not very kindly or forced to do that uh, so they had to do it um, but this is something that in the west uh, isn't working in the same way anymore right so i think that a little of my book might come to the conclusion that some of the unease with which we, we look at um, wealth inequality today also comes from the fact that during the crisis of the 21st century, the, the, the rich, and in particular the super-rich, have often been seen as insensitive to the plights of the masses, to the request for help. And in practice, um, I mean, of course, as a group, not as individuals, as many obviously have tried 
to, to help uh, invested substantial amounts of money in charities and so forth and so on. But we are looking at how they have, as a group, reacted to the question of society to contribute in ways which are decided by the proper institutions of democratic regimes. Mm. Like, for example, if we look at uh, the requests or the proposals to increase even temporarily taxation for the richest, they have been very frequent, for example, during COVID-19. But in practice, very rarely they have been implemented, in, if not in ways which are historically extremely modest, I, I would say. So the point becomes, why did this happen? Mm. And, you know, one possibility, which would be kind of compatible with what we observe, is that maybe the, the rich today have actually begun to, to act as gods among men. So the, the, the hypothesis that they kind of have an historical exceptional ability to condition the political debate and policy making and have avoided to be made to contribute more during this crisis, well, that's an hypothesis which I think is, um, is important to consider. And this is entirely in line with the concerns that Piketty has expressed a few years ago and continues to express. It is entirely in line with the kind of concerns that people in the West have had from the Middle Ages and, in fact, from antiquity uh, until today. So it's not something new on principle, but it is something that today we maybe do not understand uh, as readily as people were understanding six centuries ago. Right? Because we have a slightly different perception of the rich, which is more positive. And again, this might prevent us from fully understanding that we are also at the same time making requests to, to the super rich, to the very rich in the society, which aren't, being, uh, aren't receiving the same kind of answer that maybe uh, they, were, uh, they were being given in the past. Well, indeed, Professor, because again, as we look at again, continue to follow the complexity of this economic agenda. Not only that we need to look beyond what's happening today and also need to understand how the history has shaped who we are and also the fabric of the society and also the system, the intricate system of the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, again, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Guido Alfani. Again, Dr. Alfani, it's a full professor of economic history of Bacani University in Milan, his areas of interest, including economic history and demography, with a focus on long-term dynamics, on economic inequality and social mobility. I strongly encourage everyone go online to look for his brand new book, which is entitled As Gods Among Men, A History of the Rich in the West. Well, Professor, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and we thoroughly enjoy the conversation and learn so much about what you wrote or have written in the book. We'd love to have you back on the show as we continue to discuss additional topics. So thank you so much for doing this.